Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Clash. Nothing personal word of the day. It's Friday. It's about to be the weekend. I hope you're doing some Loverboy singing right now because everybody's working for the weekend. Baseball started. It was opening day yesterday. Yes, who doesn't watch opening day? I do. First game was not the Yankees-Red Sox because the weather is frightful, but it was the Brewers and Cubs. So I got to watch Corbin Burns reigning i called him the defending cy young award winner everyone else is calling him the reigning cy young winner but i guess he's defending reigning i think he's defending when you're defending something it's like defending champions he's the champion of the pitchers but clash is the word of the day today because there was some talk yesterday out of nowhere for no particular reason as we went into opening day that the two stars of the atlanta braves had a personality clash already they're the world champions. Their opening day is the greatest thing when you've just won a World Series. You get to raise the flag or you have a presentation. Then you have a ring ceremony coming up Saturday. It's so exciting. All you want to do is win a game, which, by the way, they didn't win. But they lost a player from last year, Freddie Freeman, who went to the Dodgers. It was a huge offseason story. The face of the franchise is now on a different team. And... Their young player, Ronald Acuna, who you may not remember from the World Series because he didn't play because he got hurt. Actually, I think he got hurt in Miami, Coca, playing the Marlins, running against the wall or running to get a ball in the outfield. And for whatever reason, he gave an interview. So when players give interviews, we as a team, we facilitate those. So what happens is if you are a radio station or a TV station or you're a national writer, you contact the media relations department of a team and you say, I'd like to do a piece with Ronald Acuna. We want 10 minutes and then you go to Ronald Acuna and you say, hey, channel WKRP would like 10 minutes. How about this time? And then he says yes or no. When he says no, you say, I think you should. Or you say, I agree with you. No problem. You don't have to do it. And then we'll be the bad guy. There's some instances where the actual publication goes right to the player. If it's a big national story, like when Giancarlo Stanton was painted, his naked body was painted on the cover of Sports Illustrated. They went right to Joel Wolf, Giancarlo Stanton's agent, who then talks to us and says, hey, this is happening. And of course, we're only too happy because it provides us with artwork that we can put in the ballpark because we made huge, big posters every time we had a player. And there were so many covers of Sports Illustrated for Marlins players. Remember when Dontrell Willis was on the, uh, the climate change cover? Sports Illustrated did a climate change article many, many years ago, way, way pre-Trump, of course, 
way when climate change maybe had a chance to be not happen or could be delayed, which maybe it still can be. And he was on the cover. We had Ozzy Guillen on the cover before 2012. That's how excited people were before 2012. Ozzy Guillen and Jose Reyes were on the cover, which was pretty cool. Of course, the Sports Illustrated cover jinx. There you go. So, although Stanton didn't get jinxed because he won an MVP, but that was well after the cover. So, someone went to Acuna and said, hey, we're going to do an interview. And he gave an interview, and it was not great. So, when you have an interview that doesn't go well, and you have a good relationship with the publication, they're going to give the front office a heads up. Hey, this is what the players said. This is what we're going with. And oftentimes, it's... it's you don't know what happened in the Acuna case, but in my experience, when there is news that's about to be made, if you have a relationship, which you're supposed to have as the VP of media relations or the director of media relations, and I don't mean the type that they had in Anaheim, I'm talking about an actual professional relationship with writers, they'll come to you or radio people will come to you and say, listen, you had a player who said this. So Acuna was asked about whether or not he was going to miss Freddie Freeman, and his response was, I'm not. Acuna was asked, well, what do you mean? Did you not like Freddie Freeman? Were you not close to Freddie Freeman? And he said, we were close in that we shared the same stadium, but we had a lot of clashes. And so, of course, when you realize you're about to get news, when you are a reporter, you're going to dig deeper and say, okay, what were the clashes? Expecting Acuna to say, hey, you know, I'm really not going to talk about that. It's in the past. We've moved on. We won the World Series. I'm excited to be back and helping the team. And we're looking forward to defending the World Series championship because we're the reigning World Series champion. <laughs> so therefore, it should be defending, by the way. We're the reigning World Series champion. And we have Matt Olson, And we couldn't be happier to have him at first base. That would be a good answer. But instead, Acuna said, no, no. Here's what happened. He explained in very certain terms that when he was a young player, which he still is, just being brought up to the big leagues, he was scolded by Freddie Freeman about ways that he dressed and ways that he looked, about earrings, about hair, about facial hair, about eye black, where the eye black should be on your eye. Just all sorts of things that... Freddie Freeman had told Acuna, and Acuna did not take kindly to that. And I was fascinated as to whether or not Freddie Freeman was going to respond, because if you are in the media and you get a star player to talk trash about another star player and to say that there is some sort of wrestling-like situation where people are not getting along, you are going to go to that player. So Freddie Freeman was immediately asked about this, and Freddie Freeman's response was, I love Ronald Acuna. I don't think there were any clashes. I was a veteran, and it was my job to speak to the rookies and to the young players and to police the clubhouse. And the organization had rules. The rules were that you had to have your hair a certain length, that you could not wear earrings, that the eye black had to stay just below the eyes and not come all the way down your face. So that's what I was doing. And I didn't think it was a big deal. I love Ronald, I miss Ronald, and I wish him nothing but the best as he continues to play in Atlanta. A brilliant veteran response. But it elicited 
quite a uh, quite a continuing of the conversation, which is why is it that either teams have these rules? Why is it that players are forced to enforce those rules? And I want to make sure you you understand from a team perspective, from a front office perspective, what's happening. The Yankees are famous for their facial hair rule. No facial hair. The Marlins had a no facial hair rule. And then they had a facial hair rule that you could have it. Then a no facial hair rule. Then a facial hair rule. And then we signed Burley and said, no, you can keep your beard. No problem. The Yankees, when you trade for a guy with a beard, whether it's Josh Donaldson or Joey Gallo, whoever it is, you shave the beard. It's not a question. We would talk to our players during the course of a season. Hey, here's the rules that are being violated. We have rules with curfew, let's say, or rules about when you have to be in the clubhouse, when you can't be in the clubhouse, etc. And if you don't have players policing those rules, you are not going to have a good clubhouse. And managers would always tell me, don't make me police it because I don't want to do it. So they would implore their players and form executive councils and talk to veterans and say, please make sure that everything is being followed. I don't want to be the bad guy. And the reason managers don't want to be the bad guy as it relates to rules is that managers are already in the tenuous position where they are living in the clubhouse every day, but are looked at as a conduit between players and front office. So players already look askance at the possibility that managers are moles or could be moles. They feel the same way about trainers, clubhouse managers, anyone who has a direct line to front off the front office. But when players police themselves, then they're more apt to listen. So what enables that to take place in a team? Well, that's pretty simple. Having veterans and having veterans who buy into it. Freddie Freeman, when he was called up as a rookie, he said, I got spoken to by veterans who told me I had to wear different shoes, I had to wear different clothes, and then often veterans with money will buy clothes for rookies with no money, buy shoes for rookies with no money, so they look the way they're supposed to look, which is professional. And so to Freddie Freeman, it was no big deal. But what if things are lost in translation? What if there's culture issues that exist in a clubhouse that we don't take into account? Because I'll tell you, running a front office, I never gave it a thought. It never occurred to me, and I, it may be different today. But back then, it never, and this is not so long ago, it never occurred to me that maybe we shouldn't have American players or white players talking to players from the Dominican. Or maybe we should embrace what players from the Dominican wanted to do and how they wanted to play and the way they wanted to have let the kids play. Remember what MLB is trying to do? Let the kids play. That's their entire way of getting younger people and younger demographics to like baseball. But owners in general are not following through on that because there are rules in place which by definition say don't let the kids be individual. Don't let the kids play. So there's a difference. It's the equivalent of the corporate McDonald's telling all the McDonald's franchises that they want things a certain way. But then McDonald's franchises say, you know, we think we know better. We're going to do what we want in our own way. And then all of a sudden there's not uniformity. And then those franchisees get penalized and punished. That's sort of what it's like in baseball because all the different teams have different rules. There's different things going on. And there's not 
the consistency needed or that some people would crave and would want as they engage in a clubhouse. I don't mean fans as they relate to the players. I'm talking about what players are supposed to expect as they go from one team to the next. So certain players are able to understand that certain teams have certain rules and other players are less apt to care about different teams with different rules and are more more tending, shall we say, to exhibit their so-called power. But then it goes a level deeper. Way back in time when people were not making money, interestingly enough, rookies would not ever go against veterans. Ricky would not Rookies would not say a word to veterans. Veterans would control everything. Now rookies are making more money in signing bonuses. They're getting more money in guaranteed contracts earlier in their career. And it is a source of great frustration for current veterans when they look at young players who are entitled and getting things that they never got. So it creates this interesting dynamic that exists now between veterans and rookies that causes veterans like parents to say, oh, we had it so much harder than our kids. We had to walk uphill to school both ways with holes in our shoes and it snowed every day. That sort of mentality tends to creep into clubhouses the way it creeps into families and creeps into workplaces. The clubhouse is just a microcosm of a workplace. So one of the things that we had talked about inside the commissioner's office is uniform uniformity is what we called it. We liked sort of the alliteration of that. Are there certain things that we want from the corporate headquarters to say to the teams that you have no choice but to do this? And the only decisions that ever came from MLB had to do with money and sponsorships. So for example, when a sponsor has the logo on a jersey, like a Nike swoosh, or Under Armour when they used to have it, when there is a only certain type of clothing you are allowed to wear under your uniform, if players are not wearing that clothing, they are fined. First, they're yelled at then they're fined. Then they don't pay their fines. Then we have to take their fines out of their meal money or out of their paycheck. And the players don't care because the maximum fines under the collective bargaining agreement are so small that some players just pay the whole fine in advance for the year and say, screw you, I will, whatever I want, whenever I want to. But it's not like MLB says to all teams, hey, nobody can have facial hair or nobody can wear eye black or everybody can wear eye black. All MLB cares about is making sure that it is upholding the obligations it has toward its sponsors. So as you watch this season unfold with the Braves, as you watch Freddie Freeman get to the Dodgers, someone said that Freddie Freeman could take over and be the leader of the Dodgers. When veterans go to a new team that has been very successful, they do not tend to take over. When veterans go to a less successful team and they've had personal success, then they're looked at immediately as a veteran leader in the clubhouse. But Freddie Freeman's going to LA right now and he's going to fit in there and he's trying to add to what they already have because what they have is pretty, pretty amazing. So clash, nothing personal, word of the day, Friday, April 8th, 2022. How about Brian Flores' lawsuit? Did you read what happened with that yesterday? It interested me because I told you when Brian Flores, quick reminder, Brian Flores is the erstwhile head coach of the Miami Dolphins who filed a racial discrimination suit against the entire NFL 
and certain teams and then had a pretty big sort of public coming out party where he talked about the lawsuit. He went on all the morning shows and he's trying to get a class action certified. He's trying to get a class certified of all of these coaches who have been wronged, who have been subject to sham interviews where everyone says they exist. Everyone knows in the NFL they exist, but now the quiet part is being said out loud. Yesterday, we got news that Brian Flores had amended his complaint and had added two plaintiffs. It's pretty big news, right? He found two coaches to stand next to him and say, we were discriminated against. That will have very little impact as to whether the class is certified. It will have very little impact into whether or not the lawsuit is actually going to prevail. But it still was very telling because we found out two more bits of news that are absolutely accurate. Number one, Ray Horton was added to the lawsuit. Ray Horton, as you, I'd never, is it okay to say this, Coca? It's okay. I always tell you the truth about what I know, what I don't know. I never heard of Ray Horton. And then Steve Wilkes also added to the lawsuit. And these are two men, two black men who had said that they did not get the proper treatment when it came to either having a chance to be a successful coach, having a chance to coach again, or have a chance to even have an interview. So here is what I'd like to tell you about this, because it's sort of interesting to me. Wilkes is the guy who was the coach of the Cardinals, and he called himself a term I'd never heard, a bridge coach. We, we would call an interim manager, but a bridge coach is apparently what you do after you fire one coach, and you know you're going to hire someone else, but you put someone in there just for a, a few games, just for a moment. So Wilkes was hired as a, as a bridge coach, and his claim was, I had no chance to succeed. And they were going to bring in Cliff Kingsbury, who is the guy... He was the one who had that, uh, the picture during, was it during the draft, Coca? Do you remember when this happened? When he uh, was sitting in this nice house and he was lying on his couch with his feet up and there was a great view. I can't remember what it was, but he was this coach who coached in Texas. He had not won a lot. He's a white guy, good looking white guy. And then he got the head coaching job and then he was great because he got Jamal Murray, I guess. And so basically what Wilkes is saying is, I never had, I called him, what is his name? I can't hear you, Coca. Kyler Murray? I don't know what I called him. Did I call him Tyler? Did I do that yesterday? I, oh, I called him Jamal. Who's Jamal Murray? All right. Is that the guy for the Nuggets? Okay. All right. Do you want to just keep it? Just keep it. Yeah, that's fine. All right. We can start. We'll start from, uh, we'll continue on. Okay. 469. So Cliff Kingsbury had an opportunity to have a, a quarterback and he had a chance to succeed and he's done well. There's no question about it. And Wilkes really did not have a chance. But then we got to Ray Horton. Ray Horton apparently was interviewing for the Titans job. And he was told nothing that he had a chance, right? Because sham interviews are bad. Well, Mike Malarkey, the white coach for the Titans, was told in 2016 that he is going to be the head coach, and that was before any other interviews had been conducted. And Mike Malarkey admitted this. So now the Titans are being accused of what the Giants were being accused of, where Bill Belichick had told 
Brian, the wrong Brian, Brian Debo, congratulations on the job. And Brian Flores had said, thank you, but I haven't even interviewed yet. And Belichick said, oh, wrong Brian, sorry. I should sort my contacts, last name first, first name second. So now the Titans could do this, the Giants could do this, and on nothing personal we've told you, yeah, there's 32 teams who do it. 62 teams, 32 in the NFL, 30 in the in Major League Baseball. Sham interviews are when you know you don't want to violate the Selig rule or the Rooney rule. You know you have to interview minority coaches, but you also know who you're hiring. And what Brian Flores and his lawsuit is trying to do is stop that practice. That's the first thing he's trying to do. The second thing Brian Flores is trying to do is make it so African-American coaches or any coaches of color, although I can't, I think it's just any, there's racial discrimination against any coaches of color, are trying to make sure that if they don't succeed in their first attempt to be a coach, they get a second attempt. Sort of like two of the coaches hired, I think Lovey Smith, this is now his second, Todd Bowles, this is now his second, and they were, uh, Lovey Smith was sort of successful with the Bears. He's now gets, gets to be a head coach. Todd Bowles, less successful with the Jets. He gets to be a head coach because Bruce Arians got fired by Tom Brady. So the NFL is trying very hard to show that what Brian Flores is saying did not happen. But then Brian Flores said, well, I'm going to up the ante with this lawsuit and give you evidence of another little nugget here that I was complaining about, which is that Stephen Ross didn't want to win games and that he was really hoping to tank for Tua. Well, guess what? Brian Flores has some sort of, we're not sure, we have some sort of letter that Brian Flores himself wrote and distributed to staff where he was saying that he was being put in a very bad position by team ownership and upper management. So basically impugning the owner's desire to win and saying the upper management was carrying the owner's water and putting me as the head coach in an uncomfortable position. So if you are a jury and you see a memo written to a fi- written to the file, distributed to anyone you want, does that make it true? Is not the smoking gun a memo from the upper management to the coach saying, by the way, I want you to punt on every fourth and one. I want to make sure you give playing time to Ryan Fitzpatrick instead of somebody else or to somebody else instead of somebody else, whatever the case may be, it doesn't matter. But when you're trying to show the frame of mind of somebody and you're trying to prove that through actual written documents, is it dispositive when the document comes from the person who's alleging the wrongdoing to begin with? Is it not possible that Brian Flores was trying to paint a picture to show a pattern because he had in his mind the possibility that in case things went wrong, he wanted to have a trail. Now, before everybody gets upset and thinks that I am being not nice to Brian Flores or that I'm being discriminatory or I'm being pro-owner, I'm talking to you as a lawyer. These are things that lawyers think about. And it is not impossible. As a matter of fact, it is pretty common that this type of papering happens. Here's how I know. I've done it. I can admit it now because it doesn't matter. Statute of limitations, I didn't break any laws, I can promise you that. Here's what papering of a file is. When you are the president of a company and you're working with your HR department, little detour here, Coca, 
little lesson for a random Friday. And you have an employee who you want to fire and you want to pay as little severance as possible, if not no severance, you are going to do a letter from the team president or the head of a department to the HR department to be put in the file. Yes, every employee has a file, electronic or paper, which talks about here's what this person is doing wrong with the job. Here's what we said to this person. And here's what the result has been. Now, every time do you speak to that employee about what they were supposed to do, about how they could do it better? Do you help them do it better? Do you wait till end of year employee evaluations when you say, hey, you did the following 10 things, you're fired. You did the following 11 things, you've got three months to cure four of them. If you don't, you're fired. The papering of a file done from top to bottom is something that you are told to do by your labor lawyers, by your ERISA lawyers, that is by your employment lawyers. But the paper filing that goes up, far, far less common, which brings me to one of the things that all companies are trying to change. In this era right now, where there is workplace harassment, workplace misconduct, bad things are going on, you're trying to make it comfortable for employees to go to somebody, whether it's someone in the HR department, whether it's someone who's independent, you are simply trying to create an atmosphere where if you feel wronged, you are able to disclose it, discuss it, and then it can be hopefully properly addressed, but with so many of these hockey and, and, and football teams not properly addressed. But that's as it relates to harassment or discrimination. When you've got something that needs to get to the attention of your boss, that is about something as core as potentially throwing games, a memo you would think is going to be sufficient. So I get why Brian Flores said to himself, hey, I'm not happy about this. I'm sending this memo. But you sure as hell better have proof because that is a trigger, shall we say, that the team is not going to take lightly. And if the team does take it lightly, it means it is completely so off base, so ridiculous and so without merit that it doesn't even, it's not even worthy of a response. Now, the irony is I would have the opposite reaction as president of a team. If I got a letter from my manager that he is upset or anyone got a letter from the manager that the manager believes that we are trying to not win games and we're asking him to make decisions that will ensure that we lose games, I'm addressing that right now. And I'm explaining to him, no, no, we're purposefully not winning games. We're not throwing games. We're just giving you crappy players. It's going to be interesting to see how this ends because it has been clear to me through the statements of Wilkes and Horton, who are now part of the lawsuit. They are joining the lawsuit, they said, to try to draw more attention, bring more attention to the racial discrimination and work to find a solution. Those are very noble pursuits, worthy, way past due. Here's what they're not, causes of action. They are not dispositive as it comes to getting damages which is why you've seen the NFL react to this lawsuit by being helpful with coaches getting second chances, by doing all the things they're in theory trying to do to deal with discrimination and harassment and the Rooney rule, et cetera. But NFL 
and Roger Goodell is not spending one minute. They're not spending one minute worried that there's going to be a class action suit where a jury is going to hear evidence and there's going to be damages that the NFL and its owners will have to pay. They're not worried about it for one New York minute. All right, when we come back, we're going to review season four of one of my favorite shows, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and we're going to talk about what we watched yesterday at the Masters because I've got one sound for you. Cha-ching! Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome back to Nothing Personal. It's Friday. Hope everyone's going to have a good weekend. I think F1 is back. I think we've got the Masters. We've got MLB opening day, opening weekend. It's just, what a great time. The play-in tournament's going to start next week in the NBA. The play-in tournament, which is here to stay, Adam Silver said. The Lakers will not be in it. I want to do another segment on the Lakers. Can't we, one of these days? I promised I'd never talk about them again. But I got to tell you, it's, it's so awesome they missed the playoffs. I'm so happy. So um, I watched season four of Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. It came out. And uh, it's got Rachel Brosnahan, and it's got Tony Shalhoub, and it's the same cast of characters. Kevin Pollack, one of my all-time favorites, is now the father of a character. He's sort of the old man, even though he's not old. I, I don't know how old he is, Coca. He's probably in his 50s. And he is uh, from The Usual Suspects and from A Few Good Men. And, and he plays a Jewish father. And I thought going into this show that it was really only for Jewish people to watch. But it turns out everybody loves it because the jokes are, are universal. And Tony Shalhoub is hysterical for Monk, no matter what religion you are, no matter how much Yiddish you know. And what I loved about season four is they got into a story. They used their big budget. My complaint about season two is that they got a bigger budget because season one was so successful and they used that big budget to do big production numbers and to make it look like the set design was so expensive, all these extras. And then season three, they went on location to Miami and it made it feel like they were just trying to be something they were not. They got right back to it in season four. If you have not started Mrs. Maisel, watch it. If you have started it, make sure you watch season four and enjoy. So the master started yesterday. It, it is a level of interest in that. I, I don't know how to make this not sound like hyperbole, but it's not. Tiger Woods moves the needle in a way that nobody I have ever seen in the history of sports moves the revenue and excitement needle. Now, come up with whatever list you want. I'm more than happy for you to do it. I'm ready for you to tell me that Michael Jordan did that. No, Michael Jordan did not. We, we should talk about it from two different sides, actually. I could argue that Michael Jordan is the most successful off-court athlete in the history of sports, and you'd have a hard time arguing with me because of Jordan brand Nike. The problem is that people today 
are not buying Jordan brand shoes looking at that logo and the kids are not saying I'm buying them because Jordan is the silhouette. They're buying them because Nike has made them to be cool shoes and they're still Jordan brand shoes. When Jordan plays a game, it sells out. When Jordan doesn't play a game, it sells out. That's not moving the needle. Advertising revenue for an NBA Finals with Jordan is not going to be different than advertising revenue with Shaq, with Kobe. Not an incremental difference. When Mike Tyson would fight, you'd have definite incremental differences in pay-per-view and revenue. Merriweather, Cotto, whoever it was. Pacquiao. Yeah, Conor McGregor. There are people where there are higher levels of pay-per-view for that fight higher levels of ticket prices because the demand is so high. All of that is accurate. But what Tiger Woods does is the TV attention he gets, the in Augusta attention he gets, the media impressions that he gets around the world for what he does, it's unparalleled. And then on top of that, you have a car accident after all of the ambient and, and marital issues, which everyone likes to be voyeurs and they always like to, to, to dive into that personal stuff. But then a car accident where he actually wasn't drunk driving, he just lost control, he may have been tired, he wasn't tired, then his leg could have been amputated. And then a comeback because the world loves comeback stories. Tiger Woods said he didn't know whether he was going to ever play again. We said he would. We gave you those wait to sees the other day. Tiger Woods was going to play the Masters. Tiger Woods tees off with metal spikes in his metal spikes on his feet and metal in his leg. In golf, you don't get a golf cart. You have to walk the entire course. The Masters has mountains and hills, and you're not carrying your bag, I grant you, but you're still walking. I actually never asked anyone. I'm sure someone has the answer because they wear their Fit Watch or their Apple Eye Health or U Health or A Health or Non Health. Did did John Daly used to walk golf courses smoking? Is that possible? Do I remember that right? That's pretty funny. But in theory, you're walking four or five miles. I don't know how long a golf course is. Maybe it's more than that. And it's very hard. So people were saying Tiger Woods, just the fact that he's teeing off on the first tee. Augusta is getting a huge boost from this. There's a huge ratings boost for CBS this weekend if Tiger Woods makes the cut. In golf, there's four days of four rounds that golfers play. People after the first two get eliminated. It's called making the cut. If you make the cut, then you get to play Saturday and Sunday. If you're at the top of the leaderboard, you get to play in prime time on Sunday. Masters Sunday. It's when Tiger Woods always wears red, I think. He wore pink yesterday. So I was thinking about CBS because that's where Coke and I are. And I was thinking about the excitement around Augusta. And I was thinking about the cash registers cha-chinging at the thought of Tiger Woods not just appearing on Thursday for a first round, but he actually shot under par, which means as well as you're supposed to do, he did one shot better. Shot a 71. And now he is in a really good position if he can somehow wake up, take enough medicine so that his leg isn't stiff and hurting and painful, get through today's round, end up at least plus one, plus two, 
or better, he will then make the cut and get to play Saturday or Sunday. So what impact can the PGA have to help CBS? What impact can Augusta have in order to make it so that Tiger Woods makes the cut and that cash registers get an even greater level of cha-chinging? And I started realizing in baseball, you can speak to the umpires. In basketball, you can speak to the referees. In football, you can speak to the referees. You could do some sort of extra pass interference, make sure that you don't foul a guy out, make sure there's a charge, not a block, make sure that the strike zone is just not as consistent as it could be. And I am not, again, telling you that umpires are doing things that are illegal or wrong. I am telling you that umpires and referees and various people are very aware of what leagues want and very aware of the situation that they're in. Golf doesn't have that. There is nothing anyone can do. They can't put the holes in a, like closer for Tiger Woods. Maybe they know how Tiger Woods likes to play and they could put the holes on the green in a certain position, which helps Tiger because he's better at putting uphill than downhill or downhill than uphill. And so they're going to put the hole placement today at the Masters in a way that could give him an incremental extra stroke because he'll putt better. Possible. But how frustrating when you own a league or a tournament or you're running a tournament and you can't control it. And it's one of the attributes that everyone shares who are titans of industry, who are in charge of huge things, they want control. Guess what, PGA? You don't have any control. However, there is so much at stake for him to make the cut. I'm going to give you a wait to see here. Wait to see is when we tell you something's going to happen. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. But either way, I promise you we will revisit it. Tiger Woods will make the cut, and he's even going to finish in the top 20 at the Masters, which is so unbelievable given that he hasn't played in over a year, given that he almost lost his leg. The legend of Tiger Woods is growing. The comeback story makes A-Rod's comeback story look like he never came back. Coca has been whispering in my left ear, When he whispers, you know how Coke is, right? When things are whispered, it's like, hey, if this interests you, you can talk about it. But if he yells it, it's, hey, this is definite. Make sure you say this or you screw that up. He would like to say that the number one athlete who moves the needle is Muhammad Ali. I want to think about that with you right now, live, because this was not prepared pre-show. What needle are you referring to? The social needle? The cultural needle? Because were the prices in the arena more expensive when he would fight. I'll grant you that. But back then, pay-per-view and the fights were on ABC and there were rights fees, etc. But no way. From a revenue standpoint, Muhammad Ali did not move the needle. But from a fame standpoint, that's a great question. Is Muhammad Ali more famous worldwide than Tiger Woods? There was a period of 50 years where I would say yes to that. And I would say that Tiger Woods is likely known by more people ages 5 to 105 than Muhammad Ali. I'm, I'm going to put Tiger Woods above that. Michael Jordan's not even top five, by the way. Not even top five. Okay, so you got that way to see. Tiger Woods will make the cut, which is pretty exciting. 
The other thing we do on Wait to Seize is we tell you we're going to revisit them. And yesterday was opening day in Major League Baseball. And I had two Wait to Seize about opening day today. And they were both wrong. I thought Robinson Cano, who was suspended for steroids again, who is overpaid when he signed that ridiculous deal with Seattle. It's the only way he went to Seattle when he got that 10-year, what was it, 10-year, $240 million deal? Something absurd like that. Well, Cano got suspended, and I assumed the Mets were just going to release him. So I told you on November 19th, 2020, that Robinson Cano had played his last game as a Met. Back on November 19th of 20. Well, he started yesterday in the Mets' victory. So... That's a no. I also thought the Rockies were going to retool way more than they did. I didn't think they'd sign Chris Bryant. They've got a good young pitcher named Herman Marquez, and I assumed the Rockies would trade him. And last July, July 7th, 2021, he should have been moved to the deadline. He wasn't. And the Rockies came out and said, we're not going to move him. And I said, yeah, they'll move him before the 2022 season. Guess what? They didn't. So... Nothing personal pick of the day. I knew it. When you play your first game, Coca, can you look this up? What did the Marlins do in their home opener in 2004 when, they, when we raised our championship flag and we did that whole great ceremony? We did the World Series championship. And I said, and I even said this on HQ yesterday. I said, it seems unlikely that um, the Reds are going to feel pressure, but there's definitely a lot of distractions. But they're playing the Reds. And when you're playing the Reds, you should be able to win that game. If you've got Max Fried, who I think is a Cy, should be a Cy Young winner. You've got Matt Olson, MVP, who I think is going to win MVP, new player for the Braves. But you're playing the Reds. Well, Freed got absolutely rocked. What did we do, Coca? We did win that game 4-3. to three. Who did we play? Oh, we played the Expos? That's awesome. Someone tweeted at me yesterday, Coca, what was my opening day record? And I actually have no idea. I said, I don't think it was 0-18, but I thought it was bad. But I guess I won at least one opening day. So that could be 1-17. Oh, wait, was that, the, was that the season opener or the home opener? I think that this person was asking me about season openers. Like opening day counts when you're on the road. I don't remember in 2004 whether we opened on the road or opened at home. But we did win the game. It was what, Coca? I know it was at home, but was it the first game of the season is what I'm asking? Or was it? It was. Okay, good. So at least I'm 1-17 in 17 on opening day. But the Braves lost, which means we're 40-32 and 32 for our pick of the day, and I'm livid. I've got three picks, all baseball this weekend. Tonight, Sean Manai is making his debut for the San Diego Padres. And they're going to beat the Diamondbacks. The Diamondbacks will not beat the Padres too straight. The Diamondbacks walked off the Padres last night. A guy named Beer on National Beer Day hit a walk-off home run. That'll do it. Madison Baumgartner was only okay. You Darvish was fine. They were both fine. But then bullpens matter. And that's it. Manaya and the Padres over the Diamondbacks. Saturday, we get to watch another debut. Carlos Rodon is debuting for the San Francisco Giants. The Giants are trying to make last year seem not extraordinary. I've been telling you that I view it as extraordinary because they all had career years. There's going to be regression. But they signed Carlos Rodon, who he's pretty good. They're playing the Marlins, who are expected to compete. They're expected to finish over 500. Take the under. 
Rodon and the Giants over the Marlins. And then, of course, Sunday night. How many Sunday night Red Sox-Yankees games are there? Well, we got Sunday night Red Sox-Yankees. And everyone thinks that the Yankees are going to finish ahead of the Red Sox, as do I. But there's a pitcher pitching who, if you haven't watched him, watch him. His name is Tanner Houck. I'm taking the Red Sox over the Yankees. So Padres, Giants, Red Sox, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So I want to touch on something to end this weekend. And I just want to make sure that you're very clear as to why I'm discussing young players getting paid. I am not against young players getting paid. Yesterday, the son of Charlie Hayes, Key Brian Hayes, agreed to a $70 million extension with the Pittsburgh Pirates. The Pittsburgh Pirates are a team who had not signed a player to anything over $60 million ever. There had never been a signing since Jason Kendall in 2000, a signing that was made when PNC Park was opening to make it seem like, yeah, we have a new ballpark in Pittsburgh. We're now going to sign a bunch of players. We're going to spend money. We're going to be successful. So they signed Jason Kendall, and it was such a bad signing that it scarred the Pirates for life. Well, finally in 2022, 22 years later, they decided to sign Key Brian Hayes, son of Charlie Hayes. Yankee fans may remember him. Philly fans may remember him. Opening day for the Pirates, they get their butts kicked by the Cardinals. They're a terrible team. They're going to lose 100 games. Everyone's excited that this player is locked up through 2029. They don't realize that he was locked up anyway until 2026 because that's how young he is. This is the most money ever given to a player between one and two years of service. $70 million. Guaranteed. A club option for 2030, which seems a long way away. Why did the Pirates choose now and this player to do it? I've got one word for you as we get close to the weekend. Grievance. The Pirates are the subject of a grievance because of the size of their payroll. They could be subject to a grievance again for this season, the size of their payroll. Their fan base is calling for their owner to sell their team. Their fan base is saying it is absolute horse hockey that the payroll is so low and the ballpark is so beautiful. Well, let me just say this to you. What we do as a front office to try to assuage our fans who are all concerned about these things, we sign a young player, sign any player, that doesn't mean our payroll's going up. It doesn't mean that we're going to win more games. It just means that we're quieting you down and maybe even the union by signing this player. What's the correlation between a player signing a long-term deal and the payroll of the team going up? I'm just curious. How many teams have you seen, like the Marlins, the Reds, and any other team, who they sign a long-term deal, but then... They trade everyone else away because he takes up too big a percentage of the payroll. They're not going to win, so they have to rebuild. Or they trade that player away because he's making too much money and they pay another team to actually help take on the contract. That's like a Tuesday. So for everyone celebrating what the Pirates are doing, I'm not being cynical. I'm telling you there are other reasons for why this contract was signed. Because at the end of the day, it's just business. Have a great weekend. We'll be back Monday, of course, because this is nothing personal. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about, but why? 
What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.